And uh, thank you. God bless you all for being here today and gathering together and um, sharing in the good things of the Lord together. How many got here an hour early and turned around and went home? <laughs> no one's going to admit it at any rate. So, all right, all is good. <clears throat> uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Today, as you know, we're in chapter 2. Um, the title of today's message is, In Him Was Life. I think maybe I will uh, read that little passage. It's not from Ephesians, but let me just kind of read it because it, it uh, uh, fits what we're talking about. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That was John 1. 1 through 5. I'll read to you just 12 and 13 also, kind of continue the thought. Um, It says in verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's more there in the book of John, but just to kind of set the stage, in him was life. Now, let's go back to Ephesians and see what we're talking about here. Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at the first three verses, took a couple weeks where we talked about the march of the dead um, and had, you know, allegories to zombies and all sorts of putrefying, terrible things, which there is a, a spiritual... Um, reality and all of that. Let me read, uh, I'll read down through verse 10. Um, we teased earlier about how chapter 1 had the largest, longest sentence in the Bible. Well, this is also a long sentence. In the original language, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is all one sentence. It's different in our, our English, but in the original language, it was all one sentence. Let me read from verse 1. And you were dead in, in the trespasses and sins in which, you once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness Toward us 
in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, today we're going to begin with verse 4, and um, that little phrase, but God, is, uh, is a very interesting one. Now, I couldn't help but think, I just want to give you just a brief outline of this. Um, in, in the books that I am reading to study, and I'm going to read from each of them here today a little bit, um, Henry Ironside, in his commentary, his book on the book of Ephesians, begins this chapter with a story of being on a train. Uh, Ironside's commentary was first published in 1937, I think. Being on a train, and a gypsy lady came up to him and wanted to tell him his fortune. And uh, his book is basically uh, 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 a, tra- a transcription of messages that he, that he gave. And he tells the story quite eloquently. And um, he says, I already know my future. I know my past, I know my present, and I know my future. And she says, well, how can you know that? And he pulls out his Bible, and he reads the first ten verses of chapter two of the book of Ephesians. So if, if you follow along here, it talks about all the sin that all mankind were in and were by wrath, um, uh, children uh, uh, or, or children of wrath. And then he says, but God, being rich in mercy... And then he talks about the things, he, he read to her this part, this is my present, and, and he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places, and then he says, and this is my future, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Well, about the time he got to the third section, she says, no, I'm not having any more new, and she ran away, she ran away from him. So if you ever get uh, encountered by a fortune teller, you now have a formula, and I can almost guarantee they also will run away if you begin to read from Ephesians chapter 2. One of the commentators I was reading just really emphasized um, the the point, but God. Um, And and we're going to read a little bit about that here in a sentence. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, in a sense, those two words... And by the way, if you have a, a translation that has a phrase about the love of God between but and God, that's, that's poorly done. That's not the way the document reads. It actually reads more like I read, you know, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, not but because of God's great love, he, you know, God did this. So kind of keep that in mind as you as you go through there. Lloyd-Jones says that in a sense, those two words contain the whole of the gospel. Let me read to you. Oh, man, the floor is a long way anymore. <laughs> Let me read to you uh, uh, just a quote here. This is a quote from John Stott. He puts it like this. He says, these two monosyllables, but God, set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. We are the objects of his wrath, 
But God, out of the great love with which he loved us, had mercy on us. We were dead, and dead men do not rise. But God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness. This is good stuff. But God raised us with Christ and set us at his own right hand in a position of honor and power. Thus, God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. So, the little phrase is a powerful phrase. And so, I want you to think with me as we, as we kind of ponder that, what Lloyd-Jones says, that these two words kind of contain the gospel. And think with me as we go through that. And and the words the words but God are not used in every one of these passages, but the action of God most certainly is. So when we open the book at the very beginning, Dave quoted from Genesis earlier, we open the book from the very beginning, we see the earth is without form and void, but God begins to work, and He speaks, and He speaks everything into, into being. We read down through the book, and we'll just go through this briefly, that we see that man becomes so evil that he must be judged and destroyed. And yet, God doesn't destroy all. He calls a Noah, and he starts anew with these families because God is moving and God is working. Later, um, men, men have strayed, and they are so far for, from him that there is no one with whom he can have this special relationship Special arrangement. So he calls a man from among the pagans, a fellow by the name of Abram, and says, from now on your name will be Abraham, father of a multitude. And he gives to him a promise that we're still seeing the results of <laughs> today. As a matter of fact, some of those promises of Abraham have their workings out in warfare and violence right now as we speak. When his people are slaves, and they are so for, for 400 years, he, he works and he brings about a Moses. And this Moses comes with power and miracles. And because of God's faithfulness, the bones of Joseph are returned to the land to which was promised to, to Abraham and his descendants. Later, and I'm skipping over a lot of history here, but later when the king thinks that... <clears throat> Sacrifice is more important than obedience. But God, once again, God intervenes and says, I'm getting rid of you as king, and I'm going to call a king who is a man after my own heart. And we have the kingship of the shepherd boy, David. And later, and again, cutting through and not cutting and getting all the details, later when his people strayed, he called prophets. And he would speak to these prophets. And these prophets, moved by him, because he was moving in their lives, spoke truth to power, brought truth and called to repentance, and even to their own detriment or their own safety and their health, and sometimes even the loss of their lives. Because God it was never be without a witness. And moving on farther, when the fullness of time came, Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. This is... Four verses four and five, my favorite Christmas verse. When the fullness of time arrived, men were dead and slaves. God sent his son, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God sent his son. 
And if, if the time allowed, we could go through in detail, go through all of these things. We could go through further. We could go through the book of Acts. And finally, we could go through the book of the Revelation. It's interesting when you, when you see that book that you see very little about what men are doing. It's all God doing this and that and this and that and this and that and bringing things until at last he redeems and purifies his, his finally all of his creation. So, this plan of salvation, which we read in Ephesians 1, took place before the foundation of the earth, before man was, before man sinned. God had this plan at work in his mind, in his heart. He knew what was going to happen. He, he knew and he was working even then. So when, the, when the, the Bible scholar says that so much is wrapped up in this little phrase, but God, folks, without that phrase, where would we be? Without the initiative of God, and I've said over the years, and um, it, it frustrates some of my faith friends, but it, it, I've said over the years that the, the rule is that God initiates and we respond. And so he tells, we obey, he commands, we follow his, he leads and we follow him. And we've read this, you know, one of these days we'll dig into deeply into the book of Romans. And we, we referred to the verses within the past few weeks that everyone who's a believer has the Spirit of God and we are led by the Spirit of God. He leads us and we follow him. He, but God, but God. So, do not doubt you can trust that God is always faithful. Um, <laughs> you say, preacher, what's going to happen in the Middle East? Well, God's going to sort it all out. And there will be a king who will sit on a throne and it will be on a mountain called Zion. And what's the king's name? Jesus, the root and the offspring, Jesse. So when's he going to do that? Well, now you're asking too many questions. I don't know when he's going to do that. But I do know that he is going to do it. So how does all this fit into, into it? I don't know. But it does. It does. We, we get, and rightfully so, we get wrapped up in the details of our life. I encourage you to be, to some degree, wrapped up in the details of your life. Don't lay the utility bill off someplace and not pay it. That's a detail that's important. When the, when the change oil light flashes in your car, I suggest that you change the oil. When the little light comes on that says low on fuel, that is a detail I think you should pay attention to. Go take care of those details. But getting wrapped up in all those details, sometimes we can forget that God is a sovereign God and He is on a throne and that He is working out His plan. And we'll look at this a little bit later in the upcoming weeks here. We'll look about how we're His workmanship and He's the one that's doing it. But I just want to go back to this, that this, this, it's not random. We've been looking at a, an interesting series in the adult Bible class, um, about the history of Christianity and nations around the world and how those nations, how Christianity has affected those nations. And it's interesting, if, if you're attuned to it and can hear it, there, there were incidental circumstances that happened that opened doors that, that, that you, you, if you think about it, you realize God was doing something. 
And probably the people around about who saw, who saw it, who were witnesses of it, didn't know that God was doing something, but God was doing something nonetheless. But God. If, if, you, if you forget everything else, remember those two words. Now you can't apply them willy-nilly. You can't run out here and be disobedient, disregard His word, and live life as you please. And then say, but God, I know you're going to take care of me. No, you can't do that. God will hold you accountable. God works according to his plan. He works according to his word. He works according to his revealed purpose. And we're going to we'll see some of that. We saw it in chapter 1. To some degree, we'll see more of it in chapter 2 as Paul unfolds this thing bit by bit. So it's not carte blanche, and some folks out here, unfortunately, take that. I've done enough funerals and known enough people that most everybody, when their relative dies, believes they're going to go see grandpa and grandma and their spouse and whoever else has gone on before them, and that they're going to see them sometime in heaven. And most of us who've been around and know the gospel know that in vast majority of cases, that's not true. We have to be honest But in our honesty, in our dealing with the Lord, remember, God is at work. But God. Now, look what it says. But God, being rich in mercy. I love what Ironside says in his little book. In what way is God not rich? Interesting concept, isn't it? God being rich in mercy. Mercy, which is based... On his love. Now I want to read to you um, a little bit or refer to some stuff in, uh, in this book. By the way, um, I'm getting so much stuff out of this book. I feel a little guilty I'm not coming up with more of this stuff myself. So um, just in case I say anything really weird, it's because I got frustrated and, and wanted to add something. All right, well, that was not a very good joke. So we, i got to put that on the list and never repeat it. All right, so um, MacArthur here puts this interesting little quote. Salvation for God's glory is by the motivation and power of God's great love. God is intrinsically kind, merciful, and loving. And in his love, he reaches out to vile, sinful, rebellious, depraved, destitute, and condemned human beings. Now, remember, that's what we talked about the past two weeks, the March of the Dead. And he offers them salvation and all the eternal blessings it brings. Man's rebellion is therefore not only against God's lordship and law, but against his love. Amazing concept. Man rebels against the love of God. So, and um, I read it kind of, referred to it briefly in in uh, John one twelve. He came into his own, and his own what received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. So he came, and man rejected not only him, not only his offering, but it came out of out of came out of God's great love. Here, here's my son. And no, no, we will not have him. Let me read a little bit further. 
It says, though greatly offended and sinned against as depicted in, uh, in a parable, because of God's rich mercy and his great love, he offered forgiveness and reconciliation to us as he does to every repentant sinner. Though in, in their sin and rebellion, all men participated in the wickedness of Jesus' crucifixion. Did you know that? He, he says their sin and rebellion. I think it would have been better if he had said our sin. Though in our sin and rebellion, we all participated in the wickedness of Jesus' crucifixion. It was us who put him there. God's mercy and love provide a way for them to participate in the righteousness also of that crucifixion. Say, how was that crucifixion righteous? Because it was the judgment of God falling on the sinful of this world. I'm going to read this here. He says, I know what you are and what you have done, he says, but because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my son on your behalf. For his sake, I offer you forgiveness. To come to me, you need only to come to him. Not only did he bring, bring, not only did he love enough to forgive, but also enough to die for the very ones who had offended him. And then he quotes John fifteen thirteen: Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Compassionate love for those who do not deserve it makes salvation possible. So, God's great love, which is the source of his mercy. So, let me read to you, or, or I'm going to read one scripture here. I'm going to get this book out of the way. I'm going to read one scripture, but a couple of these you're very familiar with. For God so what? Loved the world. John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. Well, and it's true. And you read on, you find out that Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world because the world was already under judgment. 1 John 4, 7, and 8 tells us that God is love. We, we, MacArthur used the word intrinsically, which, which means it's part of his nature. We, we theologically, you would say his, his attributes is that he is love. It's hard for us to even comprehend what that, what that's talking about, but God is himself love. And it was that love that powered his mercy. Let me read to you a couple of verses from the book of Romans about God's love. Romans chapter 5. And again, probably some of you are familiar with these verses. For while we were still weak, verse 6, still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, remember the March of the Dead, that zombie-like moving articulating sort of semi-functioning 
putrefying. That one commentator said the, the stench of their death come the stench of their death because of sin comes before God as an offensive. And earlier our commentator talked about how it was our sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. Yet God showed his love. You know, again, I go back to the phrase, but God. God showed his love. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Get works stuff out of your head. There is nothing you can do to make yourself pleasing to God. The very fact that you think there is something you can do shows how much of a sinner you are. God is love. What a great offense to reject the love of God as offered in the sacrifice of His Son. Now, he goes on here in Ephesians 2 and says... Um, the great love which we have, even when we were dead, we'll skip over that, we talked about that, and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. He says the same thing in verse chapter 1. He's re-mentioning it here in chapter 2. It says in, in chapter 1, verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the right hand in heavenly places. So here He made, he made us alive. It says earlier that He's going to make us uh, alive again, give us this glorious inheritance, according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So... Um, Read it here again. By uh, You were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. So this life that He gives to us, that changes us from this dead, unthinking, now again, I can't go back into over all that, but we looked at that in chapter 1. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the, uh, of the power of the air. We were, we were being led by our own minds and, and, and not ourselves. We, we, there was no ability, and we, and we talked about it. There was no ability in that state because you're dead. There is no ability at stake to make yourself, you can't make yourself alive. Somebody alive, something has to come from the outside to do that. And that's where the but God phrase comes in, that he comes in. He touches us. He's the one who gives us the ability to even comprehend what's going on. And he made us alive, and it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It is connected to and demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'll read you another quote here. From MacArthur's book. When we became Christians, we were no longer alienated from the life of God. We became spiritually alive through union with the death and resurrection of Christ, and thereby for the first time became sensitive to God. Now, why do we immerse people in baptism? And, you know, I'm not going to quarrel about the mode of baptism. but why do we immerse people? Because it shows the identification of the death, identification with the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. That's why we do that. Let me go back to this. Um, the resurrection of Christ and thereby for the first time became sensitive to God. Paul calls it walking in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. For the first time we could understand spiritual truth and desire spiritual things. Because we now have God's nature, we can seek godly things, the things above rather than the things on the earth, Colossians 3, 2. That is what results from being alive together with Christ. We shall also live with him, Romans 6, 8, says the apostle. And our new life is indistinguishable from his life lived in us, Galatians 2, 20. In Christ, we cannot help but be pleasing to God. Hmm. I'll come back to that in just a a second. Um, he goes on and says, we are seated. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And I already mentioned as I read from one of these that he took us from a place of, of offense and vileness and gave us a place of honor. And that's, that's what that's talking about. We're seated with him in Christ. And by the way, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at union with Christ. Do you know that in Paul's writing, this in Christ or in Jesus or some phraseology uh, of that connection, he, he uses both, term, both terminologies here. With Jesus, he uses twice. And he uses in Christ here in these verses we just read today. So with and in are two different things. We're raised together and we are in him. And in Paul's writings, he uses that, that phraseology, in Christ, 164 times, one commentator says. In Christ. Your life is not your own. If you're in Christ. So when, as I read this, MacArthur says, in Christ, in Christ, we cannot help but be pleasing to God. If we understand the fact that he has raised us up and seated us with him, in him, and that as Christ rules, we are in him and with him, and that as Christ speaks and as Christ lives and there's life that goes out, that's in us. We get this sometimes this attitude that there are other things that are that are going on, and that I I'm gonna I'm gonna scoot into this, and then I'm gonna do my best, and God's gonna look at my best and say that's good enough. We we because of what God has done, because of His grace, not because of us, we have been moved into a realm of spiritual victory and authority. And though even though we do not yet know it in its fullness, it is nonetheless very real. If we are believers, we are not what we were because we have bumped into him. We have met him. Actually, bumped into him is the wrong terminology. He came to us and showed us himself. The one who, this one in whom was life. And the life, John says, was the light of men. And he has changed us. Let me read to you from the old guy. (laughs) If I can find it here. Uh, 
This is what Ironside said, says, I am just as truly raised up together and sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus when I am lying flat on my back in the hospital as I am when in the meeting. And by meeting, he means church. God sees me up there in Christ. Do not drag it down to mere experience. It is a blessed fact that is true of every Christian. It is a great thing to have our experience answer to our standing, and that comes through walking in fellowship with him. Now, he's, he's digging into something we don't have time to dig into today, and that's how we reconcile our experience with what's going on spiritually. And I can tell you, I can tell you from, from experience, and probably some of you have had the same experiences, that our experience will lie to us. The devil is the father of lies. Jesus, in dealing with those people who would not recognize him, because Jesus was truth, said, you walk and you talk according to your father, and your father is the father of lies. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Listen to that. Jesus said, if we're going to worship him, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. So I'll go back to this. Sometimes we're in difficult situations, and he talks about it here, lying flat on his back in a hospital. We're in difficult situations, and we may look around us, and we don't see any of this blessedness that we think should happen, any of this authority, any of these great things that should be going on because we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. And we may begin to judge, evaluate the truth of God's Scripture and God's promise based on our experiences rather than letting the truth of God's promises change our perspective on our experiences. I'm going to conclude with this thought um, today. And it, it's, it may introduce a thought to you that we'll, we will come back and deal with uh, on future Sundays. Um, maybe it's something you've thought about. Maybe it's something you haven't, but I think I need, to, I need to talk about it here. And that's the security of the believer. From the very beginning of this book up until, and, and we haven't gotten to all of this yet, but we did read it, so we've read all of chapter 1, and we have read together, at least I think you were following me, I went to verse 10 of chapter 2, we see this plan of God. And how God, what God did in Christ, and how God called us in Christ, and how it's all based in Christ. And, and now, we even there was even words in there that hinted at this. But the concept is that this does not have to do with us. It's for us, but it's not based in us. It's not dependent on us. When God looks at the believer, he sees the righteousness of Christ. When that wretched dead person finally is made alive enough to comprehend that God has sent his son to die and he looks and that life comes, then that wretchedness because of sin is transferred to the cross. 
And now God doesn't look at, at the wretched sinner anymore. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Not based upon what, what that person did. I'll, I'll read a little bit of this. In a certain Bible conference, a great number of preachers attended the meetings every day. And some of them were a bit upset because the conference speaker was telling the people that if they were saved once, then they are saved for all eternity. So in trying to press the truth one day, I said, we are not being saved if we hang on to the end, but we have already been saved. It is a settled thing. I wish we could understand that. Now this is his, this is his writing from transcript from his message. When you look back at chapter 1, and I called your attention to it, it's all past tense. Even when we get to chapter 2, and you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, and then we get, you know, that past that Mr. Ironside talked about earlier, that past was there, and then this present because of what God has done. I'm afraid, I'll continue, I'm afraid there are a great many people who imagine that when they come to Christ, it is just the beginning and that they're really on probation. If they keep on and are good enough, they will be saved at last, and you need to put a little emphasis there. I cannot understand people who close their prayer with, now, O Lord, save us at last. I refuse to say amen to that, for I have already been saved. Does Does this make a little sense? I, now, again, he wrote this in like 1937, and some of this is colloquial, and we don't, you know, someone's praying, you know, that we'd be saved at last, and he's a, I'm not going to say amen. I, I can, you know, I can almost picture it on some platform, and if I knew what was going on, I'd like to watch him there go, right, right, right. <laughs> it is a settled thing, and no one is saved for a time, and then becomes unsaved, because in order to become unsaved, you would have to become unborn, and how can that be? What's an unborn person? Dead? Non-existent? A saved person who has been quickened from the dead, born into the family of God, given a new life, and that life, uh, given a new life, and that life is eternal. If that life could ever be forfeited, it would only be a probationary life, dependent upon one's ability to keep it. I have eternal life and it is not dependent upon my obedience but on the living Christ to see me through to the very end. But God. Do not ever say you are saved if you do not mean that you are saved for eternity. Now I don't have time to preach on all his sermon. <laughs> okay. But he's, he's trying to make a point here. And again, some of it has to do with the time in which he lived. And the, and the atmosphere is there. Uh, folks, in every reality, um, in, every, in, in every principle, let me use the word principle, eternal truth, human beings make it a pendulum that swings from one outrageous extreme to the other outrageous extreme. So we have people who believe that every time they sin, they've fallen from grace and they need to be saved again. And we got other people who say it doesn't matter how I live because I'm saved. And each of those far reaches of that pendulum are a scriptural error. They are not supported by scripture. 
Our salvation is based upon the work of Jesus Christ, not upon what we do. But, nevertheless, when the apostle was confronted with it, he said, well, maybe I should continue to sin that grace may abound. And then he said, God forbid. If people ask you you're saved, and you will be... um, If people ask you if you are saved, and you believe you will be saved at last, you will have to say, well, not yet. But I hope to be if God and I can only hold out together. Say, well, why are you telling us all this, folks? Well, because one, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to take for granted that you understand it. Number two, I know you know people who do not understand it. You know people who who won't fellowship with believers and won't even investigate it because they have some habit in their life that some church person has told them is sinful, and because they have that habit, the Lord can't touch them. They have to get rid of the habit first. How many understand what I tried to communicate there? Christ showed us His love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When the fullness of time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. All right, so let me go back to this. If people ask you if you're saved and you believe you will be saved at last, you will have to say, well, not yet, but I hope to be if God and I can only hold out together. That's preposterous. But if you've already trusted the Lord Jesus and believe the word, say, yes, thank God, I'm saved for eternity through the precious atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, folks, is the end of the story. It is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ who was crucified once for all time and bore upon himself the sin of the world. That you and I might have free access. <laughs> it's free access to God that we might have life and not only life, but we've been raised together and seated with him in the heavenly places. By the way, that's the title of Ironside's book, In the Heavenlies. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It's, it's such a privilege one to stand and share it. It's exciting all week as I read this stuff and you show yourself. I'm so grateful to you for your word. I pray you help us all see that we can all read it and you can show yourself to all of us. We thank you for so great salvation. We're not, Lord, here to be flippant. We were those who rebelled against the love of God. We mocked and scorned and scoffed. And then there were times when we were so arrogant and proud that we thought we could do it ourselves. We, we can look back at, and now and remember what it was like to be dead in trespass, sin. 
and wonder how God could love us so small and puny as we were and so arrogant. But God, who's rich in mercy because of His great love, through Jesus Christ has made us alive together with Him.